Hello and welcome. Today with us we have Morgana Raventree. She is the president of Pagan Pride Los Angeles Orange County and the incoming uh, second, second, second officer. officer of Covenant of the Goddess uh, National Correct. Board. Um, what else? I'm a mem my, my, my coven is a member of Orange County Local Council. Okay. Which is also part of the Covenant of the Goddess, for those that are not familiar. Right. And we are here uh, for the weekend out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, enjoying uh, the annual gathering for the Covenant of the Goddess, which is their national board meeting, and um, kind of a uh, like a festival sort of thing called Grand Mary Council Meet. Grand Council and Mary Meet. Yes. Yep. Uh, so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so today was... Uh, Today's Saturday, right? Yeah, today's so Saturday. So today was the was the last day of Grand Council. Correct. So they've wrapped that up, and a lot of changes are in the coming future, uh, the coming right. year. Right. And overall, how are you feeling about the way things worked out? Uh, a little surprised. Um, I basically, um, I was elected a second officer with the understanding that Orange County Local Council would present uh, or host Grand Council and Mary Meet next year, 2020. Right. So um, other representatives were here with me, and we discussed it and decided that we can we can pull this off. So I'm I'm the liaison between Orange County Local Council and the National Board, um, but I'm not necessarily in in charge of uh, the event next year. Okay. Uh, but there's going to be a group effort, definitely. Everybody in the Covenant is going to have to pull together on this one. Uh, everybody in the local council, you mean? And the covenant. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, that's going to be exciting because I don't remember the last time uh, Orange County actually hosted directly was... We shared a, a, a grand council Mary meet one year. I don't remember what year that was, but that was the three local councils together uh, presented... Was that within event. the recent couple years? Because not not within the recent couple years. Because no. the last time, um, the last time that Orange County co-hosted that I was at least aware of, was when I was national second officer and co-chaired with uh, Jack Pruitt. Um, so that was tor uh, Touchstone Local Council. Right. And that was two thousand eight. Yeah, that that was the year I'm thinking of. Oh, okay. That was, that yeah. was the it last one. It was supposed one. to be three, but the third local council. That's right. Uh, was unable to participate at the last minute, and it ended up being just the two of us. That's right. But it worked out really nice. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a good time. So I'm really yeah. looking forward to next year and seeing Orange County kind of pull it all together and mm -hmm. um, what's going to happen. And In fact, I presented a workshop that year. Oh, that's right. I did. That's right. It was a good year. Yeah. Um, okay. So feeling pretty good about the outcome. I like that Tyler actually got to experience witness how the lo how the Grand Council can reach a moment of uh, like a, a stalling moment and then watch everybody come together and pull their energies together and then work things out. That was really, really impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times I was like, wow, how is how are they going to pull these differences apart and work together? And they managed to do it. It was it was quite powerful. Mm -hmm. So, um, tell us about when you first came to COG. I first came to COG 
Well, I made several attempts to join um, the Los Angeles Local Council, Southern, Southern California Local Council, Southern California Local Council, in um, the mid to late nineties. Okay. And really didn't get anywhere. Oh. Um, and then I joined a coven in Orange County, even though I live in the San Fernando Valley, and I drove down. Um, several times a month for all of our meetings. And that uh, coven was a member of Orange County Local Council. Okay. So that's how I became a member of COG, through them. Okay. And eventually, um, I, I served a couple of different offices with that local council. I was a recorder, and I was purse warden at one point. And, um, and then um, I decided to hive off and form my own coven in 2008 in uh, San Fernando Valley area. Mm -hmm. San Fernando and San Gabriel Valleys, actually, is where we are. Oh, okay. And uh, when I hived off, I had to join more formally. I think I was already a member before that because I had to get credentials. Oh. Um, but um, we joined SoCal that year. And for those that are, there's quite a few people who are unfamiliar with the Covenant of the Goddess. Mm -hmm. uh, credentials, what does that mean? Credentials uh, means your clergy, basically. And there's a couple of different kinds. There's elder and ministerial. A ministerial is the kind that you are granted as long as you are with your coven and local council. And the elder is, is the type that you can take wherever you go. So um, you have, in order to get the elder credentials, uh, there's some several steps you have to go through, um, letters of recommendation and you know, referrals, and and um, you have to uh, participate in events with the local council for a year, and then you can get uh, be eligible for credentials. Now, I, I understand the process has become a little bit more fluid over time, and there are people who maybe haven't even graduated yet who already have credentials, which is a little unusual, but it has happened. Okay. Um, and sometimes it happens because somebody needs the credentials, for, for example, to perform a wedding. Um, and they need those credentials because they want to perform that wedding, and it wouldn't be legal if they didn't. So um, in such situations, they might be able to get their credentials a little bit early with the recommendation of their coven and, and local council. Okay. So um, you've hived off. You're in the San Fernando Valley, but now you're back with Orange County. I am, and um, the uh, SoCal, the Southern California Local Council, was, went through a long period of very little activity. Um, initially, when I joined them, I became first officer for two terms. Okay. And at the time, I tried to get them more involved in uh, public events mm -hmm. and participate in Pagan Pride and uh, rituals in the park and so on. But once I stepped down, they stepped back and stopped participating in those kinds of things. And um, eventually, there was less and less participation in public events. And for the last two or three years now, there has really hasn't been any. We still had regular meetings a few times a year, but it was much, there were private meetings basically. They weren't really open to the public. Okay. So. Um, so I decided earlier this year I really wanted to be with a local council that was much more active in the community, which is why, since I had originally been with Orange County, I decided to go back to Orange County and 
both Orange County Local Council and SoCal signed off on it, and so I made the transition. Excellent. Excellent. So, okay. and Orange County is all the better for it. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a question? Yeah, um, I was going to kind of go in a different direction mm -hmm. and uh, ask about when you first started down the path uh, and how you got how you found your path when you first started out? I uh, had a, a, well, I don't know how to describe this path. Um, I was part of a interfaith program. I was an undergraduate at USC in the late 70s. Okay. And was exposed to a lot of other religious groups and traditions. And we went and had a retreat weekend. And we went to the Actually, I think the center was owned by the, the Buddhist uh, organization in L.A. And, um, but there were several groups there, and there were a group of uh, Wiccans there okay. who had a coven. And um, I ended up joining that coven uh, for about two years, and then that group sort of fell apart. Uh, basically, the leaders were, were married, and they got a divorce. <laughs> so, so it broke up the coven. And then I joined another uh, coven for about a year, but that one sort of didn't really go anywhere and sort of fell apart. So then I spent about 10 years as a solitary. Mm -hmm. And um, then I, uh, I and other people who were friends of mine who were all pagans or interested in paganism uh, formed another group in the early 90s, uh, which was known as the Anti-Coven. <laughs> and... Um, and I always got uh, questions about that. Why do you call it the anti-coven? What do you have against covens? They didn't get that. That's oh. not what it was about. <laughs> it was that we weren't going to be a traditional coven. Okay. We were going to follow our own path, make our own rituals, you know, do our own thing. And that's what it was really all about. It wasn't that we were against covens. And we usually just called ourselves the AC. Oh. And that group actually didn't disband until about 10 years ago. Oh. Wow. Um, so there was an overlap of a good uh, 10, 10 to 12 years with... Uh, my, my coven I'm currently with and the AC. Oh, wow. Um, but that group was a very uh, creative group because uh, most of us had been performers of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. Singers, dancers, actors, or all three. And so our rituals were very, very creative, very eclectic, um, a lot of performance art, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed it. And... Um, but no, that group eventually disbanded. And then in the late 90s, I was, I and, and my best friend were talking to another friend who lives up north and asked her if, if we wanted to join a more formal kind of training and asked her if she knew of any groups in our area. And she referred us to a group in Orange County. Mm -hmm. So that, and then my friend did not, decide not to follow it because she got pregnant. So uh, she decided to put that aside for a year, and I for a few years, and I went ahead and joined the group in Orange County. And uh, in recent years, she has come back. She has gone through the training, and she has now graduated. So she's now a member of my current coven. Very cool. So you mentioned uh, ACs being dancers and actors and singers. I hear mm -hmm. that you uh, sing and dance a little bit. I do. I do. Um, I originally danced with a Polish group called Polski Street, 
Wow. Okay, yeah. that's uh, not what I was expecting. <laughs> a, a Polish Polish dance group uh, doing traditional Polish folk dance on stage, and I was with them for about a year and a half. And I, I got introduced to it because I went on a ski weekend with the Sierra Club, and it happened to be a folk dance ski weekend. But I want I want the ski part. I didn't want the folk dance part. Wait, wait. But then, but then they were they skiing while they were dancing? No, no, no. It was it was skiing during the daytime. Okay. And then, and then dancing folk at dancing night. at night. Yeah. Okay. So I had never folk danced before, so until that weekend. All right. So I met a person there who I ended up dating for a few years, and. Um, he got me into folk dancing. And through that, I eventually got into Polsky East Green and uh, performed with them for about a year and a half. Wow. And then when I left, I left them to join Ava's International Dance Theater, uh, which is a repertory company uh, doing uh, Balkan, uh, Middle Eastern, Central Asian, Eastern European dance. And I was with them for about five years. And uh, we toured around the country. I still kept my day job because nobody can make a living doing that kind of thing. So, um, uh, but we did do some tours around the country. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, through, I, I joined as a Balkan dancer and doing Balkan Eastern European dance, you know, Bulgarian, Croatian, some Czech, you know, things like that. But because I was in the group and there, they had a separate section called the Oriental section where the women were doing Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance. And they were always short of women. So they needed more bodies. So I started dancing with that section as well. Hmm. And so and I got more and more into the Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance. Until finally, um, about the time that Ava's didn't fall apart, but it, it went in a different direction artistically than I, I wanted to go, um, I pretty much made the switch over to the, the, the Eastern dance. And at the same time, I was also introduced to uh, Bulgarian and Croatian folk singing. So I joined the Jena Folk Chorus. Wow, okay. Most of whose members were in Avaz, you know. So okay. it was All kind right. of a natural progression. And then Jena sort of went off in its own direction. And they still did, uh, exist today, they still perform. I just haven't been with the group for a long time. But they're in, uh, in San Pedro in there. They're still performing actively. Um, and then, um, as far as dancing, um, my friend and I formed our own dance group called Tandemonium, and uh, we've been performing uh, Middle Eastern and Central Asian dance since uh, late 1990. No, actually, no, since 92. Summer of 92 is when we started. That's right. Wow. Wow. How long have I known you? I didn't know any of this stuff. I mean, I knew that you had, you had a dance troupe. I knew about um, Tandemonium. Uh, and I knew that you could sing, because I've heard you sing a lot. But I, all of the rest of the stuff, I didn't know anything about that. That's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. That's very cool. So I also remember hearing, so for those uh, in the podcast, we just had dinner. So we kind of got a little preview of what we were going to discuss mm -hmm. a little bit before this. Um, you mentioned that you read the Witch's Bible. You know, I thought about that later, and I realized that wasn't the first book. The okay. very first book I read, I was in high school, and our public library had a copy of one of Raymond Buckland's books. Oh. That was actually the first book. I couldn't buy the book. I was in the library. But, I, but it, was, it was available in the public library. Do you remember which book it was? 
Um, it was a big blue book. Uh, of course, Bucky's <laughs> big blue book. Big blue book. I don't remember the exact title, but you you know which one I'm talking about. Probably. Yes, that's uh, the uh, complete book of witchcraft. Okay, by Raymond yeah, Buckland. Yeah, yes. Right. So I read I read that first, and that was what first got me interested. And then later, I when I was at USC, of course, I was exposed to this other group that was, had an actual coven. And I didn't know there were any such things, you know, really. I knew there were, there were covens. I just didn't know there were any anywhere where I lived. Sure, in California? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why would anybody think that? Right. So, um, I was going to say, oh, yeah. And so, at, when I was in that group, I went to a bookstore called the Phoenix Bookstore in Santa Monica, which has been gone for decades. But it was still around at the time. And they had a little section on witchcraft. And I found a book called the, Com the Witch's Bible, or the Complete Witch's Bible, or something like that, which is actually made up of two books that were originally sold separately. One was like the uh, the Witch's Way and the Eight, eight oh, Sabbaths for right. Witches. That's right. But they were combined together and they're called the Witch's Bible. Right. But the uh, uh, Stuart and Janet Farrar. Farrar's, yes. Yeah. Not to be confused with the other Witch's Bible by uh, Frost's. Oh. Gavin and oh, Frost. I, I yeah, they're, they're both called the Witch's Bible, but I, I was right. with the Farrar no, version. No, the Farrar version, yes. That's yes, Farrar version. And um, I really liked what I read there, and um, but over time, I, I realized that wasn't really necessarily going to work for me. I, for one thing, I had, I, by this time, I had already out of a coven. I was, I was now a solitary, and you couldn't really do that as a solitary. Sure. It wasn't okay. set up that way. Right. Um, so, for, but, but, you know... I was also inspired um, by the Miss of Avalon and... Um, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Correct. Um, I was dating another person at the time who was a big fan of the book and introduced me to it. And, and I read it. And, and um, shortly after that, um, I got the idea of, of trying to form the Anticoven okay. with members of... Who, people who had been in the Jennifer chorus with me, oh. um, including the leader of that that chorus, um, who had um, studied Wicca as a solitary for many years, and um, he, we invited some other friends to join us, and he ended up becoming our our high priest, um, and uh, he died uh, in 1994. Of, of AIDS, hmm. and um, well, a lot of people were dying at that time. I, right. being in a dance company, you know, not all the men are gay, but a good number of them were, and a lot of them died. I lost a lot of people in, in that era, um, including him, and he was a very close friend. We still talk about him. Um, I've got his ashes, <laughs> or some of them. Um, but anyway, so no, I don't, don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> oh, um, lost the thread. We were talking about the books I read. The books, yes, books, yeah, yes okay. and what led you to yeah. your path. And and what was interesting is in the in the in the late seventies, we didn't have all these shops where you could buy. Uh, there were a couple, a, but not very many. Not very many. There was a sorcerer's shop that was around. There was also House of Hermetic, that was around as well. Um, Wasn't Eye of the Cat? But, I mean, that's in Long Beach. It was, but, but it was too far away. I wouldn't yeah. have, no, wouldn't, wouldn't have wouldn't known have gone about there. it. No, I knew about it, but I wouldn't have gone there. Oh, yeah. and I think Crystal Cave might have... It, they had a larger location at that point, but I think they would have been mm -hmm. in Orange. Yeah, I, again, I wouldn't have traveled to that, to that it's too far. Place, yeah. 
So the places where, where I was, the options were House of Hermetic, mm -hmm. uh, which really had not that much stuff, not that much inventory, and um, the Sorcerer's Shop, okay. which is where I actually bought my very first Sathami. You said something about finding a book, and since there weren't very many mm -hmm. locations, what was it that you had done? You had done something. So new. yeah, so uh, it was in the back of the Witch's Bible that edition. It came like a little slip cover. In the back, there was this, uh, um, some kind of decal or logo or something like that for some publishing companies, and so I I got and it had their address on it. So I wrote to them, and asked them if they could send me a catalog of of their books. And they did, and it wasn't just a catalog of books, but they had like you know, magical supplies, a lot of Anna Riva uh, incenses and oils, things like that, um, little cauldrons and stuff. But you know, at the time, I was in, in student undergrad and grad school, and I couldn't afford to spend a lot of money on tools. Mm -hmm. So uh, my original tools were a lot of stuff that I kind of made or remade myself. Okay. Um, so my very first athame was actually a steak knife. Okay. Um, and I, I still have it. I still have it. Um, I had, had little symbols painted on the on the, 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 on the handle, handle and you know. Um, and um, my first um, goblet was a pewter goblet that I found on sale in a thrift store. Hmm. Things like that. And I even did uh, some workshops uh, for my for the anti coven, showing them you know how you can build an altar and make all these tools using stuff you have around the house or stuff you find in the flea market or whatever. You don't have to spend a fortune. Do that. You know people are so caught up nowadays in you know the latest pretty Their Instagram you know. altars. Yes. And stuff. Yeah. I mean you don't need that. You really don't. Um, a lot of it's intention and the energy you put into it. You don't need the super expensive exactly. uh, altar candles and right, all that stuff. Right, right. And I think that's a great point for anybody who's starting down the path. And they follow these Instagram or Twitter witches that mm -hmm. have these photogenic, perfect altars that they have set up. You don't necessarily need that. And I think that's a great point. Well, because, and the thing is, you know, if you believe that this these traditions go back into, you know, a thousand years or whatever, mm -hmm. into middle, middle ages or in, in the burning times. Uh, witches would not have been carrying around <laughs> fancy. True. Uh, first of all, they wouldn't have been able to afford it. Right. Because uh, witches, generally speaking, were poor. Farmers, peasants, mm -hmm. you know, village folk. Um, they wouldn't have been able to afford the expensive tools. Secondly, it would have marked them when Absolutely. the witch finders were coming through. True. You know, which is why in the, in the old days they made the pentacles on the altar out of wax. Mm. If you want to get rid of that, throw it in the fire. It's gone. Yeah. And, you know, things like that. And a knife is just the knife that any, everybody carried a knife in those days because sure. you needed it for eating, for one thing. Um, everybody had a knife, but it wasn't, you know, fancy with all kinds of, you know, jewels and stuff all over it. Right. Um, it was just a knife. Uh, your bowl for your holy water was just a bowl. Right. It didn't need to be this sacred vessel right. of, you know, purity. It wouldn't have had, you know, magical symbols visible around it because 
boy, were you in trouble if they caught you with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course there were people who were doing ceremonial magic at the same time, who were more for the upper classes, and they might have been able to afford those kind of things. But certainly the ordinary rank and file witches couldn't afford that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Uh, it just, it was, when you started mentioning that, I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, think of how many people are like, oh, I just, I don't have enough money to start being a witch. You don't need a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. for a wand, you can literally go out into the forest. You can get a stick. stick. A stick well, makes a beautiful wand. Worst case wand. scenario, you still got your finger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's uh, it's not necessary to buy all the fancy tools mm-hmm. to do what you need to do. It reminds me of something my very first teacher taught me. He said that a lot of the tools, at least in his house for sure, they looked like they were mundane. They were out and about, so if somebody came to visit him unexpectedly, you wouldn't necessarily know. It was still visible, it just wasn't obvious. Exactly. Um, and that really struck a chord with me. Didn't mm-hmm. stop me from still having ridiculously outlandish things, but <laughs> I understood where he was coming from, and it reminded me, you know, how many people still can't be out of the broom closet. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I love your crystal skulls, but those would peg you in a heartbeat. Yes, quite, <laughs> quite a bit. Yes, they're all packed up right now. Yeah. Um. Well. So, dancing. Singing. Tell us a little more about your singing group. So, the singing group I was originally with was Jenna Full Chorus, mm-hmm. doing Bulgarian, Croatian music, occasionally Russian, or some other things. Constantly amazed me. Okay. And then, um, um, about the time that we all left Avaz, because Jenna and Avaz kind of worked together for a while, but when Jenna eventually left, about the same time, the person who was the leader of the singing group was also in a Tahitian group. So he recruited uh, uh, two or three of us to join the Tahitian group. And I'm, I've been singing with them since 19... Since last century. No, it's about 1992, 93, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm still singing with them. Uh, we did put out an album a few years ago, quite a few years ago now. Can we, can we get access to this album? Is it still available? Uh, I probably have copies of it. Okay. If you ever want to hear it, sure. I do, actually. Definitely. I do. Okay. Um, uh, uh, the group is called Tema Marite, which means the Americans. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, we have one person in the group who is part Hawaiian. Um, I am theoretically, according to Ancestry.com, 12% Polynesian, but we, we don't know exactly what. And um, the others are Americans, you know, run-of-the-mill Americans. Run-of-the-mill. <laughs> run-of-the-mill. Um, and, um, but we all have a, a very deep love of the Tahitian music, music and dance. And the uh, leaders of that group uh, danced with an, another Tahitian group called Otea for many, many years. Um, and they, they retired from the dancing and, and just wanted to do the music from now, from then on. Um, but uh, they go to Tahiti you know, every couple of years and go to the big Hava there and participate. And so. Have you had the opportunity to do I that have as not. well? I have not. I haven't really been interested in going to Tahiti. Um, they tell so many horror stories about how expensive it is and 
how awful the bugs are. <laughs> so I'm good at chicken. I don't want to go. Uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So I'm still I'm still uh, singing with them. So I know you also. So you you sing, you dance. You're also a teacher. You teach. Um, I I know that you teach this phenomenal class about uh, the evil eye. That's right. And uh, I, I know that it's been very well received when you've had the opportunity to present it. Um, any other types of classes that you? Well, I did the, uh, well, my friend and I did uh, the class on the evil eye, the evil eye and the Silk Road. That's so there's, right. there's many different versions of the evil eye in, in many different cultures. So we basically did a presentation on um, the evil eye in the, along the Silk Road. And the evil eye is not what people think it is. Right. People think, I'm going to give you the evil eye. That's not how it works. You don't give somebody the evil eye. You get the evil eye from somebody else who is jealous of you. Envy, jealousy, you know, those things create the evil eye. Oh. So to prevent them, people you know, clothe themselves in very particular ways and wear very particular kinds of jewelry to sort of ward off the evil eye. Hmm. Yeah. So we talked about it in terms of Persian and Tajik and Uzbek culture. And the presentation included the presentation of the costumes, the decorations, the jewelry, um, a slideshow of, of amulets and things like that. So it was all together. We did a couple of times at uh, Pantheacon. And I think I did it a third time by myself. Also, I seem to recall one year. you did one year by, at Pantheacon. Yeah, I, I seem to recall you did yeah. it at least one year by yourself. I also did it uh, the year at that we were in uh, in two thousand eight when we were it, did the the two or three councils together mm -hmm. did did a merry meet. Two councils, I, I, yeah. I presented the same one there, and there's a particular dance that goes along with it too. The presentation um, from Uzbekistan, uh, our shaman dance, where we basically have you know antlers on our heads. And we're wearing embroidered robes and playing with tambourines. And there's no, there's no song with this one. It's all vocal, but it's all rhythm. Hmm. So we create our own rhythm while we're dancing. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So that was always part of the presentation too. And does the evil eye that you teach about have any ties to the Romani or anything like? I'm sure it does. I, I, it absolutely must. Yeah. But, um, and I think believe that they also believe that it it's caused by envy and jealousy, jealousy. Mm -hmm. which is why for example you never praise a child you never mm -hmm. say oh what a beautiful child because the the mother will immediately spit on the ground you know and say no don't say don't say it about my child because you don't want that to bring attention right potential jealousy which that's right it that's right Makes so instead sense. what would what would be the more appropriate reaction not say anything at all he looks healthy Something like that, you know. Oh, okay. So something like that, you know, not, not something kind of non, nondescript, but never. Oh, what a beautiful child! No, 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 no. Don't fawn over yeah. them. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Don't fawn over them. Um, it's also why uh, brides wear veils over the head. Yes. To prevent to prevent the the face, the beautiful face of the bride, causing envy. Yeah. And that actually makes me uh, think of a story from Jap uh, Japan about uh, a woman, or I'm trying to remember how it went, 
there was a man or a woman. It, it, but essentially, the same kind of concept. Uh, they covered the face to try and... Uh, it was a woman, because the woman's face was covered. And they uh, claimed that the house had a spirit in it that wanted the woman mm -hmm. instead. Uh, and when they lifted the veil, she was not as attractive as she had been made out to seem. Uh, in in this case, it, the spirit was actually the bride's uh, father who was having trouble marrying her off mm. because she was not as pretty as some of the other girls in the community. So it's, it's one of those things that kind of came to mind when he mentioned the veil mm -hmm. and hiding the pretty face. It's just like, oh, we, we have this in other cultures too. Oh, yeah. I've also done a presentation with my friend on um, the Persian New Year. Oh. On the Ruth, uh, they're on the traditions that go along with that, um, which is celebrated uh, at the Vernal Equinox every year, and it's 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 a festival that actually takes almost a full month. So there's all kinds. It's like sort of like Chinese New Year. There's all these different right. things you do in advance and after, yeah. but the actual day is is uh, Nowruz is actually the Vernal Equinox, and so I've done a presentation on that a couple times. Um, I used to teach folk dance for many years. Um, we've taught dance classes mm -hmm. at various belly dance events. Um, what else have I taught? Hmm. I'm not sure now, what else to say about that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what else I can say about that, let's put it that way. Uh, understood, understood. You are a, uh, a font of information that, uh, you know, I love that you have such a wide breadth of interest that you could pull together and people. I think that's um, something that I think some of our organizations could benefit from understanding that you, you come with other cultural understandings. Um, and also as being a woman of color in the pagan community and an organizer, leader, teacher, who has a presence in our in our local community for sure, but also at a, a national level. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think that needs to be um, well. I think it should be recognized more, which is my main reason for wanting to interview you. Um, so, as tell me something about your experience, because as I understand, it, tell me tell us about tell us about when you were little and. Uh, where you grew up and how you came to where you are today. It's just, I just try to abbreviate that, but. Sure, so my parents were both born, both born in Indonesia. Um, my father was from Sumatra, my mother's from Java. And um, they both are mixed race um, and European and Asian. And after Indonesia became independent, they basically had to make a choice to either become Indonesian citizens or stay Dutch and leave. Because Indonesia was a Dutch colony at the time. Yeah. So when it became independent, they had to leave. And my, my parents actually tried to make a go of it in Indonesia, but it got to a point where uh, some laws were enacted where anybody who wasn't um, an Indonesian citizen and or a Muslim could not own property, could not lead a business, yeah. So um, my father decided at that point we needed to leave. 
So my family went to, and my, I mean my whole family, like, you know, cousins, grandparents, everybody. Extended family. We, extended family. We, they all went by ship to, uh, to the Netherlands, which is where uh, my dad had actually studied for a few years. Um, my mother had never been there before, and she was like 20-some years old, and she had never set foot there, but although technically she was a Dutch citizen. And what's really interesting is that I found a piece of paper not long ago. It was in Dutch. It was issued by the uh, Dutch embassy in Jakarta, certifying my mother is white. Hmm. My mother's not white. If you ever saw her, she doesn't even look white. But they certified that she was white so that she could immigrate back to the Netherlands. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, so my whole family went over there. And unfortunately, in the early 60s, uh, Holland was going through um, some difficult financial times. And so, uh, and a lot of the um, Indos, as, we, as they call themselves, were having a really hard time uh, getting work there uh, or just, just adapting to the society. And they went from a tropical climate to a country with actual winters. Yeah. You know, and it was really, really hard. So uh, my relatives gradually started coming to the United States. Yes, we are here legally. Uh, um, <laughs> We, uh, so I was uh, two years old when my family came to Massachusetts. Yeah. And um, we were there for about three years, and then um, we came out to California. Because one of my uncles was out here, and he was telling us how fabulous it is in California. Everybody owns a horse and a, has a swimming pool, and everybody's rich. So, so we came out here. By this time, my father was already into his 40s, and it was really hard for him to find work because his English wasn't that great. Mm. And his degree was from a, a university in the Netherlands and it wasn't recognized here. Oh. He, wasn't, he was an accountant, but he wasn't a CPA. Even though he could do what a CPA did, he didn't have that piece of paper. So that always held him back. Yeah. And um, so we grew up in, I grew up in California and um, it was uh, an interesting childhood. Okay. So did you grow up in, um, in the valley? Or? No, I grew up in Culver City. Okay. Which at the time was pretty much an all-white town. Right. Um, the only so-called ethnics that we had were Jewish families, Russian Jewish families, living up in the, the hills above oh, us. Okay. Um, and I, I was down in the flats. There were just a smattering of Latino families, not very many. And there was a little group of uh, Japanese Americans who were living right behind the high school. Okay. Along, if you're familiar with that Sawtell, that area. Yes. That okay. was like a little Japan town okay. at the time. All right. Um, but for the most part, you know, I was always misidentified as Latina mm. growing up. I know what that's always, like. always misidentified as Latina. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, there's only, there's white people, there's black people, and there's, and there's Latinos. Yes. That's it. <laughs> and they don't understand. There are no other people. <laughs> Even some of my Asian friends, my, my, my Japanese uh -huh. friends were, were misidentified as, as Latinas. Oh, no, I, no. I totally know. Did you, did you ever see uh, Born in East L.A.? No, no, I, did. I never saw that. Cheech Marin, but I know, but I never he saw gets, it. He gets uh, rounded up by a border patrol and sent off to Mexico, where they end up 
uh, with a whole group of other people that are Chinese, Japanese, <laughs> like, and they've been forced to assimilate into a culture they have no clue about. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but I totally understand that because growing up in yeah. Huntington Beach, you were either white or, on the rare off chance, there was perhaps a um, you know black neighbor, and then if you were brown, you obviously had to be Mexican. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And and the funny thing is, other Latinos thought I was Latino too. Oh, that happens too. Do you ever get yelled at for not? Uh, yes. Yeah, I've yes. I've been yelled at for not knowing Spanish from um, Spanish speaking individuals, and mm-hmm. and I'm like, but I one I took German in high school, and two I'm Hawaiian, so it's a little yeah. different. It's less common now because yes. uh, you know now that the two or three generations of. Uh, people of Mexican or other South American descent True. have grown up here, their kids, are with each generation, are speaking less and less Spanish. Yes. So they're not misidentifying me as much anymore. Yes. You know. I understand that. Yeah. Plus, you know, sometimes their parents are, are one parent is one is Latino and one, one is not. So, you know. That's true, too. So that, yes. that's, that's, that's more becoming more common. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, it's becoming more common. Yeah. And, and that's a great thing. It's showing a blurring of lines and things like that, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can only hope continues. But, you know, you mentioned to me that you had never been to Hawaii. No, I, I had only been to Hawaii, clarification, on my way to the Philippines to spend a month with my grandparents mm-hmm. in the 70s, and we had to change planes in Hawaii, and I do very vividly remember the silhouette of the palm trees at, at the sunset and the interior of the airport staring at some fiber art on the wall in the airport and I was very tired it was you know it was already nighttime that's the extent of it and I know that I need to like my my next younger sister on my father's side she is over in Hawaii right now and mm-hmm. she is in the middle of the protests on Mauna Kea which I'm not surprised that she's doing that but she's been uh, Facebook Live herself while she's out there with the chants and, and everything. And I'm super proud of her because she's really awesome. Um, but one of these days I do need to make it out there, visit family, and just kind of get a feel for the land that I, you know, most of my genetic history is connected to. And Well, I've been to Hawaii three times. Um, the first time was a, a, a dance tour with the, the Avas group okay. I used to be with. Second time I went with my mom. And the third time I went with some friends. And when I go there, I feel totally at home. Really? And it's not just because of, of like Native Hawaiians or anything, but there are so many Asians. Mm-hmm. And Asians from different groups are marrying each other, marrying non-Asians, mm-hmm. and, and everybody's so mixed. Okay. It's almost like there aren't that many white people. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's a little different than like around the mainland. And I feel totally at home there. Nice. Completely at home there. Um, I thought at one point about moving there, but too much of my life was here. Here, yeah. And so I just I couldn't make that move. But you know, I, I do like going back there. Yeah. I think you'd love it. I think the uh, when you get away from the big city, I'm just no. No, no, no. I totally know. Yeah. I, it you know because I did post on Facebook not that long ago about how I feel very disconnected from it. I I'm finding um, individuals like yourself who are not related to me, that I know of, um, that <laughs> <laughs> that uh, have been coming to me individually and saying, here was my experience. 
and I had a very profound experience over there. I think that you would love it over there. And I'm hoping that I'll enjoy it, but I'm also absolutely terrified that I'll get there and I won't feel connected. Mm-hmm. It's a, kind of a weird thing. But with my Apache connection and coming through Arizona every single time, as long as I can remember when I was little, as soon as we cross over the river going up the 10, as soon as we get over and I could start to see the red rocks of Arizona, I felt like I came home. So I'm hoping that I'll feel similarly if I go to Hawaii. Or I should say when. I get your, your fear there. I've never been to Indonesia, even though my parents are from there. And I've got some of the same feeling about, well, I, I, I identify as Indonesian or, or actually I'm Indo- Indonesian and Chinese, um, as well as European. Mm-hmm. And, um, but if I actually go back there, will that show me that I'm not really Indonesian after all? Yes, that's kind of how I feel. Am I too Americanized? Oh, yeah. Too? That, that too, you know? That's, that's yeah. also a thing. Am I too Americanized so I'm not really one of them? Right. That, that, that also... I, do, I would like to go there. I would definitely love to go to Indonesia once, you know, before I die. Um, but I don't know. If I never make it, I think I'll be okay. Okay. But, but I still identify myself as an Asian. Yes. Asian American. Right. And, and that's something that... So... You know, um, I was adopted, and my adoptive mother was Filipino from the mm-hmm. Philippines, and my adoptive father was, a, you know, Polish dude from Detroit. And um, I had always kind of, um, as an American child, not very accepted from my mom's side of the family because mm-hmm. I was too American. I mean, our, our even in the 70s, my behavior being in the Philippines was definitely California kid, American child, and uh, a lot of her uh, family were not particularly fond of me. They thought I was a little spoiled, and maybe I was. I mean, their life was vastly different than mine. But growing up, I always felt I identified as Asian American. Even though I am Asian, it's just my Hawaiian side is significantly larger, but I don't have any Hawaiian upbringing, right? You know, I didn't have other Hawaiians in my school that I can kind of chill out with and connect with in any way. So, you know, I just so I've always identified kind of you know culturally Asian American. Yeah, my only connection growing up to Indonesian culture was the food. Yeah, the food culture. I mean, because we ate Indonesian food. Is very similar to Filipino food. Mm-hmm. Very, very, in many, many, many Quite ways. Quite a bit. Yes. Well, yeah. you know, and historically, that's my food there too. A, a be, go back enough, far enough in time, of course, the, the, the people, the Philippines people, Indonesia were actually the same, the same people. people yeah. you know? Well, you can hear it in language too. Yeah. Because yeah. when I hear Indonesian speaking, for a moment I'm like, are they speaking? And then I realize they're not. Not that I understand Tagalog really well, but I. I recognize it because my mom would speak it to her mom mm-hmm. and her family and I would hear it all the time never understood what she said but you know I heard it a lot growing up so when I hear somebody speaking Indonesian I for a millisecond I'm like hey that no that's I had not. the same experience at where I work because uh, in the office where I work we have quite a lot of uh, Filipinos working in our accounting and IT departments huh. and sometimes when they're we're in the elevator they'll start speaking to other like yeah, just have that moment of, hey, wait a minute. Oh, no. <laughs> what language is that? <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> um, but, yeah. So, um, 
have you ever experienced anything within the community, the pagan community, where you felt any 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 time any time you had a moment where your ancestry came into play somehow within the pagan community, negative or positive? Does that make sense? Yes, sort of. Well, part of the problem is that because I don't look Asian enough. Sure. I mean, you could kind of blend in a little. Yeah. I, when I was younger, I was actually much darker. And I looked much more Asian. The older I get, the paler I get. Well, and that's partly from, from well, age and working in an office indoors all the time. Say, and, it has a lot to do you know, with not yeah. being in the sun as Right, much. that's right. A lot of it, it does have a lot to do with that. Um, my brother, on the other hand, is really dark, oh. and he well he works he works indoors, but he's outdoors cycling and things like that a lot. He's really dark, um, so he definitely looks more Indonesian than me. Okay. Um, as far as so a lot of people, it's funny, you know, when I first got involved with like the Pagans of Color Caucus mm -hmm. at Pantheon, when I came back to my coven and I was telling them about that. One of the people in the group looked at me and said, you're a pagan of color? <laughs> I said, yes. What color? Wow. I said, Asian? You're Asian? <laughs> and this is someone who had known me for like 20 years. <laughs> and, and he did not realize that I wasn't white. If it makes you feel better, when I first met you, I recognized that you were Asian. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Like, it, it's not that hard to identify, but, I mean, I guess people who aren't around different cultures much might not reckon... But, I mean, you, your office has tons... Well, this is your covenant, never mind. I was thinking your office has tons of different cultures in it, so... Well, that's my office, yeah. Yeah, but that's the office. Uh, yeah. um, but, um... That's actually really funny. And, funny. uh, years ago, uh, I, I went out on this date with this guy, and it during the course of our conversation... He looked, started looking at me really funny. He said, I thought you were black. What? I said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I thought you were a light-skinned Negro. Said, Whoa. Whoa. It's like, and he was from Canada. <laughs> he, he, I, he said, he confessed that until he came to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. he had never eaten Chinese food. Whoa. Um, he was never, he living under a rock in Canada? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, we're talking about like, you know, 30 years ago. Okay. So it was a long time ago now. So wherever he, he was growing up in, I think it was in Montreal, he never saw black people at the time. How interesting. Okay. So, um, so <laughs> that's what he thought about me. Um, I had an interesting experience at Pantheacon this year. Okay. I, um, I intended to go to this workshop on some kind of arts and crafts thing. I don't even remember what it was. Mm -hmm. And so I went into the room that I thought was the right room. And I saw... Uh, Crystal Blanton and a couple other people, you know, setting up a little altar. And, mm -hmm. and I thought, am I in the right room? Uh, maybe not. And then um, this woman was, was sitting next to me and said, well, I guess the, those people decided to show up after all. What? I said, I said what do you mean those people? You know, those people of color. And, and, then, she, and then she sort of looked at me and said, she went like that. <laughs> I, I swear, she's like, like, like a double, double take. take. Like, like, I said, I said, 
yes, I am a person of color, and I'm here too. (laughs) (laughs) And she was, she turned like purple. (laughs) But then I discovered that I was actually in the wrong room. The workshop was actually, in, I was planning because it was actually in another room. So, so I apologized to Crystal and I ran out and said, "Sorry, I'm in the wrong room." So, you know, but still, it was it was like that moment when she looked at me like, like "Oh my god, oh, that's so, so weird." Yeah, I I have heard, I, I I have heard from a handful of other people who have uh, experienced a situation similar to that at Pantheacon in recent years, mm-hmm. um, and it, it seems to be more. I don't want to say pronounced, but I'm, I'm definitely hearing more incidences that are very specific and pointed, mm-hmm. that are overt um, issues of racism. I, I don't personally feel that the event overall um, deliberately, like, I don't feel like uh, Pantheacon supports that behavior. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's just they're occasionally individuals who can't mm-hmm. seem to pull their heads out of their butts. Yeah. And then, and then open their mouths in the process. So, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think the. Ev- I. I love going to Pantheon. I always mm-hmm. have a blast there, and I certainly never feel any overt racism there. But microaggressions, yes. Yes, uh, I have heard people um, say that they've had overt uh, incidents, but more often than not, I do hear a lot of microaggressions. No. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, that sucks. I didn't realize that happened. Uh, I when I went to uh, this year, it was I think we had did we arrive late? I don't remember what the deal was. We had arrived, and then I was looking at the schedule, and I'm like, okay, I gotta go. And I made a beeline because I saw that the caucus was the next thing on the docket, and I went somewhere, and that was not where I was supposed to be. That was not the right place. They moved a lot of stuff around, and it was hard to keep track. They had moved it, and then I went to another room, and then I was I, like, I was in two wrong rooms before I finally got to the correct and, one. And that was. But I still lot. got there on time. Yeah, there but was, it was a funny. lot of that. Um, and I think what ended up happening is uh, one of our people took a little bit longer to get ready than. Oh, oh, okay. We were delayed. Yeah. Yeah, there was four of us in a room, so. Whatever, I had a great time. Yeah, it was it I was mean, excellent. There, yeah, I had a good time overall at Pantheon mm-hmm. itself. Yes, I was even good. with the uh, fire drill. The fire drill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the only other thing that I think was not. Um, no, we didn't even know about that. Yeah, we were up in a friend's room and we didn't even know what was going on. The when uh, somebody had pulled the fire alarm or something, um, there were concerns about protests mm-hmm. and there were concerns about other potential um, issues going on with some um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, just potential problems and uh, I don't know why the alarm went off but we were in the middle of the pagans of caucus event and we didn't know what the noise was and then somebody came over the like I guess there was a PA system or something, mm-hmm. but they didn't explain what was going on, and we just sort of stood there in the room. And I guess most of the hotel evacuated, and we were still in the mm-hmm. in the room. And nobody well, came and it got us. It didn't go off on all the floors all at the same time. That oh. was the weird thing. So oh. it didn't go off on all the floors at the same time. I heard something about something getting caught on one of the fire alarm triggers, and somebody. Pulled it that way. Oh. 
Yeah, I never uh, found out what caused it. Yeah, I, and that was just rumor. Like, I overheard things. Yeah. Nobody had an official statement. But I was all the way up on, like, the 10th or 11th floor. And, of course, when the fire alarm goes off, uh, the elevator stops working. Yeah. So, oh, jeez. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I had to run down to down the stairs to evacuate. But, oh, it gets better. The bottom door... Is locked. Stuck locked. No, that's not good. So you can't get out, so you have to go back up. And we had to go across the second floor to get it. So it was just this whole rat mess. And it was like, it's a good thing nothing is going on because there'd be a bigger problem here. But I think it was a learning experience for the hotel. <sighs> that's scary. Yeah. Um, but I, I heard, again, I, I like sitting And, and I'm and just listening. thinking about all the people that we know that are... Um, disabled and yeah. mobile challenged and mm-hmm. what what were they supposed to do yeah yeah so i'm glad it ended up being a false alarm so am i um sorry for the tirade there but <laughs> I'm t- uh, the whole time i'm sitting there thinking why are you complaining about going downstairs you're young well the problem was then going back upstairs to where i was oh. at because again elevators weren't working still oh that's right so it was down 10 flights of stairs then back up ten flights of stairs. It's your exercise for the day. It you got your my, steps in. Yeah, I definitely got my steps and stairs in. Um, so, how's um, how have things been as president of Pagan Pride? L.A. and O.C. Wow, it just it's just gone by in a blur. I mean, how long have you been president? I think I'm in my third term okay now all right i think i'm remembering that correctly um yeah i'm in my third term so this will be my third pagan pride as president before that i was uh i think i was secretary or for a year or two Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and anyway um it's an amazing event it is it's too much for three board members to handle we only have three board members i know um we depend on a squadron of uh, volunteers. volunteers and volunteer coordinators to put the event together. We couldn't possibly do it by ourselves. It used to have a much bigger board. Um, but we do a lot of planning all year round, and then when the day comes, it goes by so fast, and I never get to do all the things I want to do sure. that day. I, I usually get stuck at the front booth running things there, mm-hmm. um, and I never get to go even to visit the people who are doing presenting workshops or any of the rituals or anything like that. This year's gonna be a little different because I was the volunteer coordinator. I have handed that over to uh, another board member. Okay. And so this will be the first year that I'm not in charge of the volunteers or the front booth. So I'm hoping that this year I can actually go out and you know say hi to all the vendors and introduce myself and same with the workshop presenters and the ritual presenters and let them know who I am, you know, and um, um, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be good. That'll yeah. be very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I look forward to uh, going to my first Pagan Pride, because that'll be my first Pagan Pride after uh, starting down this path uh, mm. a little over a year ago, or about a year ago now, so. Yeah, so, yeah, until last, last year was the first year I had off. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I was doing. Uh, I was in charge of the stage for twelve years. Right. right. So, 
um, and then we decided to disband with the stage and the equipment because it was the lion's share of the budget that I didn't feel was really a good investment for the organization. Right. Um, that was the largest uh, segment of, of our budget. Right. And um, once we got rid of that stage, it, we did actually see a little bit of profit last year. Which is great. Right. Um, so this year, we're trying something a little different. Mm -hmm. um, there will be entertainment, but it's going to be more of an like, open mic type situation. And I'm mm -hmm. not in charge of it. Right. So I, I don't really know all the details about how it's going to be run. But there is an area that is designated uh, for entertainment. Right. It's not going to be a stage, though. So uh, no stage, no um, PA system, no, no. electrical plug-ins whatsoever? No. Okay. We, we might have uh, one speaker and mic. We haven't uh, confirmed that yet. Okay. Because we need to be able to announce the raffle right, winners. I think. And uh, we weren't able to do that last year. We actually had somebody who was going to bring her uh, speaker. Uh -huh. um, except she didn't realize that she needed to plug it into a generator. Oh, yeah, that was the thing. That's um, what I was thinking. You might better off getting a, a megaphone. We always right. had a generator to yeah. uh, power the stage. So um, so that may be, th we may have to do that this year. Okay. So just, just so we can at least do the uh, the raffle announcement. Yeah, Yeah. this this year, um, Tyler and I are hoping to actually have a booth mm -hmm. and uh, maybe do some interviews on site and uh, maybe a little play-by-play -play on, on the festival itself. Uh, but it is, is it the largest of the Pagan Pride events? I can't say because I haven't been to a lot of other Pagan Pride events, so I really don't know. Um, when I was, we were at the Parliament of the World's Religions last year, um, um, I did run into a woman who uh, belonged to the uh, Philadelphia Pagan Pride. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a pretty big event, too. Um, it's not as big as ours, though. Oh, really? I th yeah. It's it's definitely nicely attended, and it sounds like it's very well rounded. Um, they uh, they definitely seem to have a good a good event, mm -hmm. a real solid event. But I don't believe that it's as large as Los Angeles. But it could be a really close second. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, there used to be one in San Diego. Right. There used to be one in the Inland Empire. Right, those were actually smaller. And there is still one in Anvil Valley. Oh, great. Yeah, that yeah. one's still going on. It's a smaller event too, but um, it, it seems to be a pretty nice event. And then um, there are other pagan prides in uh, Northern California. Sure. Some of which are not affiliated with the national group. Oh, okay. Some are, are on their own. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to, to this event this year. Uh, we've got a, we have a lot of good workshops and rituals and entertainment. Magnificent sure. vendors. Yeah. It's, um, and Selling it's all those fancy tools with the crystals all over them. <laughs> and it's Bye. a wonderful location in Long Beach. Yes, it is. Um, I, I like that you guys moved the event to that area uh, because it's, one, it's cooler. <laughs> Just like physically cooler because um, it's right next to the ocean um, and it's just got a, a lovely breezy area a nice big area for the event for us to and you can still get some walk through traffic which is mm -hmm. kind of what we need so yeah we um, 
when we moved the event, there were a lot of people who didn't like that we moved it because they felt more exposed at Rainbow Lagoon. Right. Um, on the other hand, we liked the idea of Rainbow Lagoon for that exact same reason. Exactly. Because our purpose is not to just have a festival for our pagan friends. We wanted to spread the word about paganism um, to the greater public community. And that was important for us to have it in a public park and not charge admission. People can walk through. People come walking through with their dogs and, hey, what's going on here? And then they see this vendor with some some shiny thing and then, oh, what's that? And then before you know it, they get sucked into you know mm -hmm. coming to everything. And we love that. We love that. That's, that's really kind of what we're uh, all about. And plus there's all the, um, well, I, know, I don't remember because I was, was camped out over in a different vendor's booth um, but there's usually um, uh, boards that explain all the variety of paganism and um, right is there there usually is something like that the board set up the yeah. information boards yeah, yeah information yeah. boards and yeah, stuff. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of different organizations will be there that are present and um, to talk to about whatever it is that they represent uh, to any individual interested or if they're interested in joining. So mm -hmm. it's a, a wonderful event. Plus there's rituals. There are rituals. Um, authors sign, uh, authors there to give readings or are they signing books? What's the uh, the, These are mostly workshop and ritual presenters. Okay. Um, they are given one hour to present their book if they have one. Sure. Um, if there is room available on the program, we would consider other authors too who are not presenting that day. But it is primarily meant for the the workshop Presenters. authors to okay. to show their latest books. Okay. And, so and then you usually have three tenths of uh, workshops. Yes, three and tenths. presenters. That's right. Um, but some of those rituals are quite huge. Like the yes, main one is uh, is like the one that's around about lunchtime. Mm -hmm. Is uh, always amazing um, I you know because that would be the time that I have to sh not schedule any entertainment because it would be near the stage so I get to sit there on the stage and watch from afar because I couldn't leave the equipment alone so mm -hmm. um, but it's a really nice afternoon in the park yes it is so when is the when is the date set for Pagan Pride LA it is uh, Sunday October 6th and we start at 10 o'clock mm -hmm. to the public and end around by 5.30 okay. to the public. Mm. The vendors are showing up, of course, much earlier yes. and staying later. I, of course, will be there at the crack of dawn, yes. before the crack of dawn, actually. <laughs> um, it's still dark when I get there. Uh, dark and, dark and dark foggy. Leave. <laughs> yeah, it's dark when I leave. And that'll be, um, but in, it's a free event to attend. It is free to attend. Um, the parking uh, area mm -hmm. is not owned by us. It's operated by the city of Long Beach and the Long Beach Convention Center. They charge a fee. Last year it was $15. Oh. And, um, but there are some other places nearby where you can park for a lot less money. But unfortunately we have no control over what the city charges that parking and there's public transportation that's yeah, really close to public right. transportation mm -hmm. drop off and right where you can take a lift that's right. right that's right and we encourage people to do things like that you know 
some of us have to drive to the event because sure. we're, we're carting a lot of stuff. Right. You know? But if go, you can, we'll carpool yep. or use public transportation, whatever, you know. Yep, yep. Yeah. All right. Well, shifting gears, unless you've got some more follow-up questions. Wait, you said October 6th? Yes. Okay. Um, uh, no, go ahead. What did you have? I was just going to ask... Uh, what kind of tools do you use? Do you do any divination tool? Use any divination tools yourself in your practice, or what's your specialty? Yeah, I uh, recently participated in my first Orange County Local Council of Cog Psychic Fair. Oh, oh! And okay. I did two things. I did Javamancy, and I did Tessiamancy. Whoa! And Javamancy, it's it's kind of all the rage right now. It's all right. A, it's this little board that's decorated with various symbols. And you basically toss coffee beans at it. And you know, the, the, if it bean lands face down, it means one thing. If, if it's face up, it means something else. If it lands on an empty space, then you just take it away. And then based on where it, what symbol it, it drops on, you can tell the person's fortune. Yeah. It's a fortune-telling okay. board, right. right, basically. Mm -hmm. And then tassiomancy is reading coffee grounds, right. which is a very ancient practice in uh, some parts of the world. Um, I, I tend to do the Turkish style, um, but it's, it's done in many, many places. And so that was my first time to do Tassiomancy as well. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. That's right. very cool. I, it just, it was one of those things that came to me as like, hmm, I wonder what kind of divination tools you use. Or you use. So that was, that was, I've never heard of either one of those actually. So yeah, was... and, and um, I had a lot of customers that day and uh, People seem to really get something out of it, you know. I would ask them, you know, does this mean anything to you? And I, after I gave them the interpretation, sure. does this mean anything to you? And, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, so, okay. That's great. Okay. That's, That's great. awesome. Yeah. That is very cool. Nice. And, and I do standard things like tarot readings and okay. pendulum. Yes. But I'm, I wouldn't call myself like a master of any of those things. Okay. Um, I, but I do some of that. Okay. Um, what would you say you are in uh, witchcraft practice? What do you think that you have mastered or that you are a really excellent at? And I'm an organizer okay. and a teacher. All right. I am a font of useless information. <laughs> That's not true. Useless and trivial information. You have a lot of fantastic, amazing, useful information, too. I'm, I'm, I'm very Sheldon-like sometimes about my, <laughs> about my font of information. Um, and uh, my focus in my practice has always been on worship of the goddess and the deities. Okay. Um, I do spells because it's part of my tradition because we're all supposed to be able to do spell work. But that's not what really attracted me to, to Wicca in the first place. It was really uh, communion with the goddess, with the, with the divine feminine. Okay. Mm. Um, and um, that's really why I'm in it. And, and uh, the last few years, I've gotten much more involved in sort of the bureaucratic aspects of, yeah. of, of Wicca and paganism, you know, the festivals and mm -hmm. the... Love the coven teaching the, and so on. All the boards. Yeah, all the boards I belong to and things like that. Yeah. Um, and I would at some point really like to focus more on my communion with the goddess because that's 
um, what I really came into this to do. Okay. So what advice would you give to somebody who is just starting out on this path? Is it, what's one key piece of information you would recommend? Follow your inner voice. Mm. If it feels wrong, it is wrong mm -hmm. for okay. you. Okay. That's uh, if it, what? That's a great bit of if advice. It, if it feels right, it's right for you. Doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but it's right for you. If, 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 you, if, if your inner voice tells you that this is where I belong, then that's where you belong. If, 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 you, if your inner voice tells you, that guy is giving me the creeps, you know, if the teacher or something like that, he's giving you the creeps, get out of there. Right. <laughs> you know, listen to your instincts, listen to your inner voice. Uh, let that guide you. Don't get too hung up on the tools and the books and all that stuff. Um, just you know, be calm and let yourself feel, and you know, experience everything. Try a lot of different things. Don't just try one thing. I mean, I, as part of that interfaith project back in the late '70s, went to a lot of uh, religious observances from a lot of different groups: um, Buddhists, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jewish services, Catholic. Episcopalian, um, you know, just a lot of different things. And it was very important to me to participate in, in a lot of different events before I could make up my mind about which way I wanted to go. Um, so yeah, experiment a little bit, get out. That's good advice. That's excellent advice, thank you. Uh, so I'd like to talk about an issue that has been brought up over the last several years, cultural appropriation. That's an issue that I really struggle with. Um, you know, I, I've told you about my background, and mm -hmm. I did uh, Bulgarian dance. I'm not Bulgarian. I did I did Russian singing. I'm not Russian. I performed uh, Middle Eastern and Persian dance. I'm not neither of those things. Mm -hmm. I've done Tajik and Uzbek dance. I'm neither of those things either. Um, I'm an Asian, but I'm not. You know, Central Asian. I'm East Asian, mm -hmm. or Southeast Asian, um, and I sing a Tahitian group, but I'm not Tahitian. Right. Although I supposedly am 12% Polynesian of right. some kind, right. some unidentified kind, um, and it, it's a real sore subject for me because um, I I have been accused, and and my groups have been accused of being culturally appropriating other people's cultures. Um, but the problem is not everybody considers it cultural appropriation when you do their dances or sing their songs. Um, uh, I did a, a show years ago where we were performing a dance from Central Asia, and afterwards a woman from that country came up to us and thanked us for doing her dances because her kids didn't want to do it anymore. Oh. And she loved seeing somebody else doing those dances. She didn't consider that cultural appropriation. I think if you do it with respect to the culture, it's more of honoring that culture beyond appropriating their... Yes, but it can be a very fine line. Right. It can be a very fine line. Um, I mean, the Tahitian group I'm with, half the people in the group are white, mm. and they've been accused of you know, appropriating Tahitian songs, but not by Tahitians. 
Okay. I've seen some. I've seen that happen before mm-hmm. too, from yeah. people outside of that particular culture accusing somebody else of cultural appropriation, but the people in that culture have not said anything. Right. I mean, they when they go to Tahiti, they get invited to join the jam sessions with you know, with Tahitians, and they love it that they they pref- they do that music, mm-hmm. um, and I think it's great that Americans are doing that kind of music. Um, and, you know, I see a lot of stuff online uh, about um, some actress or whatever has lots and lots of braids and they're stealing African culture. Mm-hmm. That same hairstyle has been worn in many other parts of the world, True. including parts of Asia. Um, when is it cultural appropriation? When you do it totally out of context? Or I, I just don't know. It's, it's a subject that I struggle with, to still struggle with, you know. And I've been accused of, well, there's an example. Um, you uh, started a group at one point, uh, Pagans of Color. United Pagans of Color. United Pagans of Color. And uh, I was at one of the meetings, and one of the other persons there started talking about a ritual that I had done, mm-hmm. um, uh, an a Indian ritual, as in, you know, India-Indian, mm-hmm. um, and that somehow she felt that was cultural appropriation. And I went up to her afterwards and said, did you realize that I was the one who did that ritual? I guess she had only just met me, so she really didn't realize I was the same person as the person who was in all those, that costume, you know, who had done the ritual. And um, I said, you know, my, my ancestors were Indonesian. Before they became Muslims, they were Hindus. Right. Is that still cultural appropriation? If I'm doing the, a ritual of the people of my ancestors, you know, is that still cultural appropriation? Um, I don't think so, but she apparently so. did. But she apparently did. So, you know, there's things like that. And it, it's just become a big uh, issue uh, with people accusing other people of stealing their cultures. Well, I think it's part and of outrage culture, too. Like, it almost feels like, especially on social media, that people are looking for something to be outraged about. To some extent. To some extent. And some of their outrage I absolutely understand. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I ab- it's absolutely obvious that, it, yes, that is cultural appropriation. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when, for example, when Beyonce wears a Asian outfit, or, you know, Asian-styled outfit. Mm-hmm. Is that cultural appropriation? She's a person of color, but she's not Asian. I've heard I've heard people complain about that. Mm-hmm. You know? So yeah, so it's it's a really hard subject, and a lot of people who are in the folk dance and folk music community just don't know what to do. I have a very good friend who teaches Persian dance. She's white. She has no claim to teaching it. But she loves it. She's done it for 40 years. And she's a very well-respected teacher. People who are of Iranian descent come to her to learn that dance. So, you know, I don't know. It's a really hard issue. I think, at least for me, when somebody is, when I walk into a ritual, and the person that is leading the ritual is not 
the ethnicity of whatever culture they're utilizing for their ritual. And you can tell that they did a very superficial, uh, you know, research into that particular culture. And then they go forth with um, the standard Wiccan style ritual outline. But now they've just plugged in the very generically known mm-hmm. cultural icons and goddesses and gods and little uh, touches, mm-hmm. whatever it is, whether it's clothing or an occasional word, without truly understanding the culture. I'm going to say that that's appropriation. But if they've gone to the length of research where they do it um, with true honor and respect, where they like with the dance with the uh, the folk dances you're doing the dances as they were intended to be done you guys did the research you're not making it up mm-hmm. and in the style of the culture you're, you're doing the traditional dances see and I think that's appreciation mm-hmm. and you know in I, I was in originally studied anthropology I have a master's in anthropology and um one of the things you learn is that the culture is not clearly defined and it changes. as people think. Mm-hmm. Yes, it changes over time, and there's cultural drift, mm-hmm. and some element of culture A over centuries may creep over to culture B and be absorbed by them, and they don't even know that culture A had it first. Sure. That happens all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and, of course... People don't live in one little area mm-hmm. usually for usually. thousands of years. Right. Yeah. Um, Genghis Khan went, you know, through the, swept through Asia. <laughs> right. He, there was you know, wasn't there a whole wall built because of him? Yeah, and and he and he brought his culture and Chinese culture through Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, basically, he killed everybody in his way, and then yeah, and replaced them with his own people. Um, and his own children. And his own mm-hmm. children. Uh, many thousands of them, yes. Just funny, um, we were actually just talking about him like two days ago. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, so, yeah, it's, it's just a really hard issue. I still struggle with it about when, it, if, if, is what I'm doing appropriation or not, you know. But if I'm singing songs, Bulgarian songs, because I really love them, mm-hmm. is that appropriation? Because I'm not Bulgarian. No, I don't think it is. Um, if I'm doing Uzbek dance, because I really love it, is that appropriation? Because it's not my culture. You know, If I had to do the dances and the songs from my only my own cultures, I would either be doing Dutch square dancing, <laughs> um, Indonesian uh, dance, which is only suitable for tw- 12-year-old girls, um, or Chinese dances. And, you know, that's it. <laughs> so... Um, I would be really limiting myself, you know. But I think that, again, you're doing the dances not pretending to do the dances or a dance in the style of ish. Um, You are doing traditional dances. You are honoring that culture, even if it's not your genetic culture. Mm -hmm. I feel that you are honoring it and appreciating it. It's when people go and they just, 
they, they're just doing it for the look or the sound, but not the feel, not the genuine, earnest understanding. Is it that? Then, then I would say it's cultural appropriation. But because you aren't genetically Bulgarian and you enjoy this particular something, singing, dancing, whichever, I don't, I don't think you should uh, worry that that's cultural appropriation. And I also think that because you're mindful and sitting there wondering, well, wait, what am I doing? Am I doing this this way? I think that that also shows you're not just appropriating. Yeah. A few years ago, or okay, not more than a few years, like 20, 25 years ago, the trend in music and dance was towards fusion. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got an album of uh, Macedonian folk music played by African musicians. Okay. Yeah, that was the trend at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember. And um, some of the stuff that, um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember his name now. A Breton uh, folk singer did with uh, an Algerian singer. They did an album together as well. Hmm. Um, that was a trend at the time, and now it's gotten to the other extreme where we're not supposed to mix cultures almost. Um, yeah, I'm not on board with that either. I really do enjoy the fusions. Yeah. Um, but I love it. You get some beautiful music from it. I you mean, do. Fusions, whether it's music, dance, food, whatever. Yeah. Right, right. People. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, as as time goes on, there's going to be more and more people like us who are multi, multi ethnic, multi racial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> my, just, I don't know if you guys. I don't know if I ever showed you my, my you sh- wheel. Yeah. It's, it's every continent except. Except Australia. Yeah, and, I'd be. And, uh, yeah, in Antarctic. <laughs> and the flip side, if I was stuck only like honoring uh, my DNA history, I would be stuck to the Germanic and English uh, continents or city, uh, mm-hmm. countries uh, because I'm I'm Wonder Bread. I'm super white, <laughs> and. Uh, Quite frankly, I enjoy music from other cultures and other countries. I, I've listened to some Middle Eastern songs, and I'm just like, this has got an amazing beat. I don't understand a word they're saying, but I can get behind what they're trying to convey in their music. I've listened to... And that's called appreciation. Exactly. But it's not like you are trying to uh, put on the effect of being somebody who's from the Middle East. You're not walking around pretending. No. Um, you know, uh, I think that's a, I really don't think that you're the type of person to culturally appropriate. You're the type of person to culturally honor. Yeah, I, I, I would, hope so. I would agree with that. Um, from what you've told, from what I've learned from meeting you and spending time around you, doesn't seem like that would be your cup of tea to just go off and be like, oh yeah, today I'm going to be... Today I'm going to pretend like I'm uh, North African just because. Like, what? Well, there's certain cultures, there's certain cultures I I will avoid um, out of respect. One of them is Native American culture. Mm. Okay. Um, uh, Many, many years ago, I heard an interview with a writer, I, I, I think he wrote a book called Indians Are Us. 
And in it, he, he, was, he was writing about the fact that um, these group, at the time, these groups of you know, middle-aged white men were going off into the woods to learn to to uh, meet their inner spirit or something like that, and oh, they were yeah. and they were incorporating a lot of like N Native American drumming and mm -hmm. and clothing items and ritual gear and so on, and he was saying that you know how a lot of uh, tribes really hate that kind of thing, mm -hmm. and that stuck with me, and so I kind of avoided anything like that, and not because I don't like the culture, but because I respect the culture too much to get into something that I, that I really don't understand. Well, mm. but you know. again, that's, that's where that line of cultural appropriation is. They're mm -hmm. not respecting the culture. They're not even appreciating it. They are superficially incorporating it on top of something, mm -hmm. you know, without a genuine understanding of the, the depth of that culture and the true spiritual commercialized meaning. it. Well, yes. But a lot of that is happening quite in paganism. Yes, mm -hmm. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, people are taking things out of context. Yes. You know, when the last time I went to, to Britain, because I traveled in England quite a bit, um, I, I went there hoping, you know, to find um, their ritual stuff, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the shops and stuff. All their shops are full of Native American stuff. Really? Mm. They were not interested in their, their own cultural heritage. They wanted to learn all about Indigenous American stuff. Because it's exotic. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. It's exotic to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Scotland might actually have a better chance. Uh, Edinburgh? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I went there, and that place has got some history. I like, I, I, obviously. <laughs> I was like, did you just say that, really? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you go there, and somebody who's in tune to energy, and feel, you can feel just walking into the castle the energy of that place and it's amazing and there are tours there that you can actually go mm -hmm. and hear the stories of the old like there are parts of that city that date back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and they still have that document and it's just amazing mm -hmm. and I was a little busy while I was there I was on my honeymoon at the time mm. So I didn't get to go check out for any metaphysical or occult shops while there, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were some there, and the people there are just so open-minded and kind. There are There is at least one really, really good one on Cannon Gate. Okay. Um, Cannon Great Crafts. Um, they sell a lot of the Pictish oh, okay. um, textiles and um, the tweeds from Harris and oh, a lot of the... Um, uh, the picture stone kind of jewelry, mm. the, the symbols that you find on the picture stones sure. in jewelry form. Yeah, I, I spent a lot of money there. Spencer, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I did want to comment on the wonderful jewelry you have on today. I also Thank noticed you. you had a beautiful witch hat that you had on earlier. I did, I did. Um, I it was a gift from okay. a member of my coven. He gave one to each each of the, each of the members of my group. Um, last year, I think for Christmas, I put the pins on and stuff myself to decorate it, and uh, it was very popular at Pantheon this year. So yes. a lot of people were in that yeah. hat. That were. Yeah, but yeah, it was, I, I expected a lot of people here to be wearing that hat, but I, they weren't. So. Oh well, I'm thinking the ninety-something degree weather is perhaps uh, keeping nah, people. From it's not that hot. 
<laughs> Those of us coming from Southern California, it's not necessarily that yeah. hot, but... Yeah. Actually, no, I, I thought it was actually not nearly as hot here as I thought it was going to be. It was 95 today. Yeah. I don't, I don't consider that that hot. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's also, you know, as I say, this is air quotes, a dry heat. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But no. I think that's all I have. I want to thank you for the excellent interview and taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your time and your energy that you've given to our community. You have been a wonderful gift to our uh, overall community, and I appreciate you taking time to interview with us. Thank you. It was fun. And for those of you listening, we want to thank you as well for joining us and if you want to reach out to us you can find us at ravens at the crossroad.com or listen on itunes music google play music or spotify we also have a facebook page and a twitter which i think is ravens crossroad i believe crossroads because there was limited characters um, but you can reach us there. And on our website, we also have a donation page for those that would be interested in helping sponsor us so that we can actually visit more with uh, pagans around the, uh, whether we're in the U.S. or going to Canada, or even if we get to go abroad, which is some of our hopeful future yep. uh, events. So thank you again for joining us. <laughs>